you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Wow, that cracked on me. Thanks for coming by, guys. We certainly appreciate it. As always, to see the video version of this, the most amazing video version that's uh, free for an unlimited time on youtube.com, Forecast Chris Voss. You can go there, hit the bell notification button. Also, go to goodreads.com, Forecast Chris Voss. You can see everything we're reading and reviewing over there. And you should follow me. I actually like, have an author page. So that's just like an added benefit, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe not. Anyway, go to Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all the places the Chris Voss Show and myself being the Chris Voss part of the Chris Voss Show are at because... I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO Entrepreneur Toolbox that I use to scale my business success in innovate and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold. But the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, different collectors, limited edition, custom-made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold. Anyway, guys, we have an amazing author on the show, much more amazing than myself. His name is Brendan Burrell, and he has written an amazing new book that is very topical. It's, I'll let you be the judge, but it sounds very topical to me. It's coming out October 26, 2021, so you're going to want to take and pre-order this baby so you can be the first on your block to see or read it. The First Shots, The Rival, or I'm sorry, let me recut that. The First Shots, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. And uh, he's coming on the show. He's going to be talking to us about his amazing book and all the stuff that he detailed in it. Not only that, he's an award-winning journalist and the author of this new book. And it tells the inside story of Operation Warp Speed. Over the last decade, his writing about science, health, and business has appeared in dozens of outlets, including The Atlantic. Bloomberg Businessweek, National Geographic, Wired, and the New York Times. He grew up in Texas, received a Ph.D. in biology from UC Berkeley in 2006 before turning full-time to journalism. He lives in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Brendan. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me here. 
Good, good. And congratulations on the new book. This is always exciting. You get out of the editing process and get that book published, and now you got to go around and talk about it for the next six months. Yeah, it was an <laughs> epic scramble. I'm glad to relax and uh, just be able to talk rather than have to write. <laughs> Most definitely. So give us your plugs so that people can find you on the interweb. I'm Brendan Burrell. You can find me on Twitter at B. Borrell. The webpage for the book is just thefirstshots.com. You can pre-order the book there. And yeah, that's all there is. There you go. So what motivated you want to write this book? Like everybody else, we all remember what it was like back January, February 2020. We're going about life as normal. We hear about this strange new bug coming from China. And I had all my plans for, I'm going to go report in the desert here in California. I'm going to do this project, that project. And it just came to halt. I I couldn't travel. I was just personally invested in what was going on. We were all just reading the news every morning. Oh my. And I have this background uh, in writing about science and infectious diseases. And so I started pitching a few stories here and there. And it was, it was becoming clear by March and April that the only way out of the coronavirus pandemic was a vaccine. Mm. And historically, vaccines take years to produce. The fastest ever is the mumps vaccine. That was four years. Fauci was talking 18 months minimum. And it, it was clear that whatever was happening, that the vaccine story was the big one. And I wanted to be there following it. And yeah, over the last 18 months, that is what I devoted my life to, is trying to understand everything that happened and how we got here. Yeah. There you go. Give us an overall arcing of the book. Like, so what's some of the details? I noticed you outlined some different people in here or the players, if you will, of the game. Uh, you've even got some people called Wolverines and some other things. Give us yeah. a kind of overall arcing, if you would, of it. Yeah, the book is, it's told chronologically of a court across the pandemic year. I opened the book the moment that coronavirus, the first coronavirus gene sequence goes online. Some doc, there is this mysterious outbreak of pneumonia there in Wuhan. And after a bit of a delay, the coronavirus gene sequence goes online. And that's the moment when the clock starts ticking, because now scientists around the world can start working on a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And so the book tells the process here in the U.S. of how the scientific race becomes like a business, a product, a vaccine, mm -hmm. and how it becomes this political football. And with Operation Warp Speed and just all of the craziness we saw unfold in last fall around the rollout of the vaccine and Trump's election. And I wanted to take readers inside to the players who actually made this happen. So it wasn't just like the scientists. So we learn about scientists. It's like the public servants. It's the political appointees. We learn all of their stories and how they were fighting to get this thing out. So that's the arc of the book. And it's, uh, it, it's a pretty epic story that, that I feel proud to be able to tell. Yeah, I don't think we've ever developed a vaccine or made it public this fast ever. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Some vaccines have taken decades to develop, and we're yeah. still not fully there. I mentioned the mumps vaccine. That was four years. This thing was 11 months from sequence to approval and rollout because we pre-manufactured this thing. So it is quite an accomplishment. And I think a lot of people think, oh, we've heard about vaccine hesitancy. You might have a friend or somebody says, well, I'm a little afraid of it because it was rolled out so quickly. But the speed only came because of, say, decades of research that had gone into this ahead of time, developments on the mRNA, which is used mm -hmm. in the Moderna and Pfizer shots, 
and some of the, the dedicated scientists who were studying some of these weird viruses and had a strategy for how they would tackle it when they needed to make a vaccine. Yeah, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, because you've done the study on it, that, but the mRNA blueprint sort of way of telling the body how to fight stuff isn't like overnight new. They've been working on it for years and actually I think they didn't they use it in a few other things? It's been tested for a long time. People really wanted to do therapeutics with it, make it artificial insulin or whatever. And that that had been the first attempts to use mRNA. And then I think there's an mRNA and some type of veterinary vaccine. I have to check that. But Never before in humans. And this is what's so remarkable. Uh, they basically inched up closer and closer to the finish line over these last couple of years. But it was really just this incredible need for a vaccine, the amazing amounts of money that the government sunk into this thing that allowed us to bring this thing across the finish line. And I think it's pretty clear that mRNA is going to revolutionize medicine for the next decade. That would be awesome if they could fix things like insulin and stuff like that for diabetics and things. Yeah, there's a lot of rare gene diseases that the targets that they're focusing on where, you know, rather than growing up a protein in a factory, you just give a person the gene and not a thing. Yeah. Working like computers. So you just give us a little schematic and we'll run with it. I don't know. So how do these vaccines work then? Yeah, this is what's a vaccine supposed to do. It's the basic idea is it's supposed to teach your body, you know, how to attack a virus, a parasite like or something like malaria, which is a single cell microorganism. So it's trying to train your body. And so the Mm -hmm. way you do that is you give it a weakened form of that thing or you give it a piece of that thing because we all have this incredible immune system. Mm -hmm. We when we cut ourselves and we get some type of infection our bodies produce antibodies. Um, and so we have this natural antibody response. But it turns you're a little bit slower if you've never encountered the bug before, as what happened with this new coronavirus. So the part of the point of a vaccine is give your body a little bit of a taste for it. So it's already got the defense ready. And so mm-hmm. I think back in the early days, the first vaccine was, of course, the smallpox vaccine. And that's kind of used a uh, uh, cowpox, a very similar type of virus. And by giving people this weak virus, you would be prepared when you get a smallpox infection. Later on, we started using killed viruses, like the polio vaccine was initially a killed virus vaccine. And then people started giving just little pieces of the virus, these protein-based vaccines. And then that led to mRNA. And the idea with going with each step in this process is the smaller the piece of the virus you give, the more focused immune response you get the less likely you are to have side effects and so on, because this is the central challenge of a vaccine. This is what we face this year, which is compared to a drug where you are only treating sick people, a vaccine is given to the healthy people. So you're exposing a whole lot larger swath of the population and it's a swath of the population that's healthy. And so you don't want to do anything that could cause harm to them. Even Mm -hmm. a rare side effect becomes a problem. And so that's why developing vaccines is so challenging and it's done so slowly. For the thoroughness of it. So do we, in in the speeding this up, were we balancing the destruction of our world and environment and financials and just everything? We just all be living in lockdown forever. Do we, do we have to make a bet and exchange some risk for some security or to get back to security for that matter? 
Yeah, that's always there's always that 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 balance. It's like, hey, how long yeah. do you want the country to be locked down? What is the risk of an an elderly person getting COVID and dying, and so on? And with the pandemic, the there was clearly a need to move faster than normal, and it really caused the the regulators at the Food and Drug Administration, for instance. This is a little known fact, but one of the architects of Operation Warp Speed is like. The top guy at the FDA, Peter Marks, he's like this geeky mm -hmm. cancer doctor, super passionate civil servant. And he was well aware of this game of balancing versus the benefit. And that was the whole thing with an emergency authorization. It's like, all right, what level of proof do we need? We don't need the full approval. We just mm -hmm. need a really strong guarantee that this thing works and it's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why they did shorten the timeline a bit, but they did, they did the math and they said, you know what? Most side effects from vaccines occur within the first six weeks of a vaccine being, being given. Mm -hmm. And they decided that's how long of a safety follow-up they wanted before they were willing to give it an emergency authorization. Yeah. Um, a lot of basically the way that the vaccine process was sped up was the there's normally the biggest issue with, with developing a vaccine is the risk that your vaccine is going to be just a failure, a commercial failure. You spend all this money running these tests and it doesn't quite work good enough. Yeah. And, and so companies draw the process out. So they'll do one study and then they hold their meeting and then they'll do another, they'll invest a little bit more and a little bit more. And what Operation Warp Speed did was it said, hey, we're going to throw all this cash at you we want you to do everything in parallel. We want you to take all that dead space out and we want you to start manufacturing the vaccine before it's been proven effective. And hey, if it fails clinical trials, we'll throw it out. I didn't know they'd started manufacturing before it was even approved. I guess I did. I didn't know how far along they were, how long the time took, but that's pretty amazing actually, right? Yeah, I, I think the, the process of manufacturing a vaccine is just so complicated. Even they wanted to start you know, manufacturing it immediately, but it did take quite a, quite a bit of time to start scaling up the process, especially mRNA, which had never been made on a commercial scale. But that's why everybody was super disappointed in December when whatever Pfizer was like, oh, actually, we don't have 100 million doses. We only have 20 million. Yeah. Um, but there was, they were working that whole time to try to scale things up. And I remember one of the big things was the refrigeration issue and just trying to scale that. That's right. It was frozen these things had Pfizer's had to be like negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit mm -hmm. um, which is a ridiculously cold temperature and mm -hmm. locals doc local doctor's offices have uh, super freezers like that yeah, like so, negative so, something or other just like, Whoa. exactly so it was like the UPS hubs had to have freezers Pfizer made these special boxes that would carry like 975 doses and these dry ice compartments, it was, that, that was really something. That was, the, that was the downside of the mRNA vaccines is they hadn't optimized the stability of it. Cause that was, and that's the original problem with mRNA is it's a very short lived molecule in the body. It's very fragile. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so, that's why you have to keep it really cold. Yeah. Um, plus but, you got to make sure that 5g chip stays, stays, no, exactly, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kidding people. Yeah. If you yeah. think I'm serious on that, go seek mental help. The, uh, but I do the getting the extra bars with mine. I got the Moderna. I think that gives me three <laughs> bars on the AT&T network. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, I feel like this is actually really a question, even though it sounds a little bit like a joke, but, or it comes from a joke that we just did, but it does 
seen I read everything and I've taken a lot of data, but I'm no scientist. That being said, I'm gonna be I'm gonna talk like I'm a set. No, I'm just kidding. It does seem like the Moderna virus uh, or the vaccine seems to be like really good. And then there's the Pfizer one, and then the J&J is something you get in an alleyway or something. Uh, am I getting that? Am that, I right there? Or? That's a little bit harsh. I, hey, putting on my, my, my public health hat. <laughs> just to be fair to them all, the thing is, all three of these vaccines are scientific marvels. Yeah. They will stop severe COVID. J&J, first off, is... that There were a lot of hopes on J&J because it was like, it didn't need to be frozen. It was cheaper yeah. than the mRNA vaccines. And the idea that it could be effective in one shot, Operation Warp Speed yeah, basically true. pushed J&J to do it as one shot, test it as one shot. Oh, it really? was tested as two shots in other countries. Huh. And But they thought, yeah, if we could do one and done, that's like magic. And yeah. that you would only have to produce half as many doses and so on. It didn't work out. And that was as well as people had hoped. With the other vaccines, yeah, Moderna and Pfizer ended up going a slightly different route when they were racing through their development process. Moderna ended up with a 100 milliliter, uh, 100 microliter shot, microgram shot, sorry, I'm not getting this out. And Pfizer's was one third of that size and Moderna spaced their shots out a little bit further. And uh, I think the experts told me that there were pros and cons of these two approaches. The beauty Mm -hmm. of the Moderna shot was they were really siding on like, let's make sure this is effective as long as possible. Let's, the beauty of the Pfizer shot is, hey, you can stretch out the amount of material you have. You can produce more doses. You also can have fewer side effects. There are some studies that suggest that the reaction to the Moderna shot is, is more significant. The people yeah. are really, <laughs> it, it hurts. I, I didn't have that. I, I got the Moderna shot and I'm fine. I didn't have yeah. a serious reaction, but some people did. And yeah, Pfizer definitely has experienced a little bit more of the waning immune and whether it's people are going to need Moderna shot. I know that third shots have been approved for Moderna, but the data look like it's going to last three to six months longer. Wow. And you're still pretty good off. See, I knew um, it was better. Yeah. Yeah, which one did you get? I got the Moderna. Yeah. Okay. In fact, I had yeah. to. I, I only hang out with Moderna people now. I I had to get rid of all my Pfizer friends and J friends because oh. you know it's a club. Yeah, <laughs> they had they had interesting. It's an interesting fall from grace for Pfizer, of course, because it was mm-hmm. called the, like the hot person vaccine and the status vaccine early on, and uh, Pfizer came at it and they put all of their own money in it. They didn't have to deal with the warp speed that much. They did interact with them in certain ways, but whereas Moderna was the little guy the the david Mm -hmm. versus the goliath so why what did uh, pfizer get out of being first i guess they were first to the race so winning the thing was pfizer started from behind oh really yeah moderna was working with the national institutes of health starting day one they were they started ramping up for their there's three phases of clinical trials you do first you test an animal then you go into sort of a safety trial with people and then you go to big the bigger efficacy trials and moderna was just racing and pfizer like most pharmaceutical companies was like sitting on the sidelines Mm because like the thing about these like emerging diseases like bird flu and everything is everybody gets scared there's some headlines and then the thing burns itself out and that's in companies a big company doesn't want to tell its entire vaccine team hey stop making that seasonal flu vaccine that we make money from every year and focus on this because mm-hmm. it's just going to be a waste. And so Pfizer sat back for a while and then it became clear, this is going to be a big problem. Mm-hmm. And they joined forces with this German biotech company called BioNTech. Mm-hmm. And, and they basically 
moved as fast as they could to be first. They did not want Moderna to beat them. And I think it's clear what they got out of it. Number one, being first across the finish line, you get bragging rights. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're the status vaccine. We know that, I mean, they were able to sign more deals because once their vaccine was proved effective, it's like countries were lining up. And so I think, and here in the U.S., it's, I don't know, like maybe 50% more Pfizer doses have been delivered than Moderna doses. Oh, so wow. they've benefited greatly from it. They're talking like $30 billion of income of mm. revenue this year from the vaccine. And if they had been second place, Moderna was what, a week behind. So it's yeah. not a huge deal. But it's, again, J&J, you're, and nobody, look at Novavax. They're way, nobody's talking about them. There are other logistical problems that people are worried about. It's, hey, if you're second place, how are you going to get people to enroll in your clinical trial? Everybody's going to want to get vaccinated and not take the chance. Do you talk uh, in your book about the Russian vaccine? Remember how do, he was I like talk, the first, technically? Uh, yeah, if you give somebody a vaccine without <laughs> testing it at all, yeah, you can be sure, first. Sure, yeah. Uh, it depends on where the they're actually the backed up on that now. They can't get enough of it. Is that crazy? That's what they claim. I should probably. That's like reading the first pages of the top uh, Chinese newspapers online. It's really hard to know what exactly to believe with that one. The thing about it is, yeah, the Russians have. There's this funny thing where if you have a strong bioweapons program, you probably have a strong vaccine program. So <laughs> Russians are, have all these brilliant science. They just don't have the same level of investment and and. We don't really know what what they've released, how accurate it is, and and there have been. That's true. That's yeah. true. I remember when it was like Putin's daughter took it, and you're like, did Putin take it? <laughs> and really, in Russia, they need a vaccine for people who fall out of second story windows accidentally. That's uh, <laughs> what they need a vaccine for. I'm talking about. Let's yeah. see. So Pfizer got out first. You profile some of the key scientists behind the coronavirus vaccine. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. There there were so many people that went in. And that worked on this incredible endeavor. But one of the guys that, that I really admire is Barney Graham. He's this six foot, five foot tall Midwesterner, just a swell guy, worked at the National Institutes of Health. And he'd spent, he works under, he's retired now, but he, he worked under Tony Fauci, for instance, at something mm-hmm. called the Vaccine Research Center. And he worked on some HIV work and then worked on this little like, obscure virus called the respiratory syncytial, which actually it's a pretty important thing, but not many people have heard about it. But he all through his sort of dedicated work, he developed this like strategy for attacking coronaviruses, which is they all have the, the spike. You've, I'm sure you've heard about it. They're covered in 40 or so spikes, which is how they get into our body cells. But the problem, sort of the concern with some of these coronaviruses is that spike changes shape. And he and his people working in his lab came up with this strategy to basically make a disembodied spike, <laughs> the spike protein in habits are fixed in a form that your body can develop antibodies to. Mm. And because he'd done that, he was able to basically within two days of the gene sequence coming out, send a proposed vaccine design to Moderna. That's and amazing. the thing about Barney, yeah, the thing about Barney is he's not just a basic scientist. Like he has a fascinating life story and getting the vaccine out to say the black community has been very important to him. And he's just a big sort of, he's been a big supporter of bringing in sort of underrepresented voices in his lab. So mm-hmm. there was the woman who was doing the mouse experiments there at the NIH. Her name's Kizmekia Corbett. 
And she's, she became a huge Twitter star because she's a funny woman, a black woman growing, who grew up in Hurdle Mills in North Carolina and among the tobacco fields and has become this world-class coronavirus vaccine researcher. And she, yeah, she's just great. So yeah, I think in the book, I, I tried to paint the stories of all of the characters that contributed mm-hmm. to the vaccine. And of course, again, it wasn't just scientists, but it was people at the FDA that, uh, are these dedicated, passionate civil servants that made this thing happen. Because the, the science is just one part. There's the product. There's the getting, delivering the, the vaccine as well. You write about how Operation Warp Speed, what it is, how it works, and President Trump's operation. Did How influential was this in really helping get the vaccine rolling out and out to people? Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting question. The... One of the central problems with vaccines throughout is that they've never gotten enough funding. The thing is, a vaccine is not as much of a profit maker as a drug, or at least that's what drug companies have said in the past. And when things were ramping up, it's like, yeah, Moderna was moving fast and Moderna has some money, but they weren't investing as much. They weren't as moving as fast as they could. And other companies, it was the same deal. Johnson & Johnson was saying, oh, maybe we'll have a vaccine in a couple of years. The Operation Warp Speed really did come together, number one, to do to put a huge amount of cash into the vaccine race to get companies to start pre-manufacturing their vaccines. And then also there was some hand-holding involved. And this, there was actually some friction with this, but in terms of designing the clinical trial in a way that they would succeed during a pandemic was, was a big concern. Looking back, we think, oh yeah, it was so easy. Sure, they, the vaccines were successful in November. That's just the way it is. But if you rewind the clock to April and May, there was like concern there might not be enough cases of coronavirus, the way you show if a vaccine is, is successful, if it's effective, is by comparing the number of, of coronavirus cases you have in, among your vaccinated group versus your unvaccinated group. And there was like talk that there was like going to be this summer lull and then, you yeah. know, because everybody is respecting social distancing and masking. We know that's not true. But there was this fear that there wasn't going to be enough circulating coronavirus in the summer that you wouldn't know if your vaccine worked. And then in the winter, you'd get this tidal wave of cases suddenly coming when people move inside and we wouldn't have a proven vaccine. And so part of Operation Warp Speed was like working with the companies to initially they thought, okay, let's, there was one proposal to test the vaccines in prisons. There was, because there were all these prison outbreaks there, the outbreaks of of coronavirus in in prisons, but they said, oh, that's not a good idea. Then there was like an idea to, basically try to track, predict what cities were going to have outbreaks. Because remember, back then, it wasn't like coronavirus was all over the country. It would pop up one spot, pop up somewhere else. And if you want to test your vaccine, you want to be where the outbreaks are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was just in this enormous logistics effort to make sure these clinical trials were happening in the right way. In the end, the coronavirus kind of took off, and it was pretty easy to test. But yeah, I think a lot of this is we owed Operation Warp Speed. And just to circle back to your point about, like, oh, it's Trump's Operation Warp Speed. This is a big point I make in the book, mm-hmm. um, which I just think is fascinating. Is yes, the the president gave the operation of a green light, the approval, but it's the people who created it. The Peter Marks at the FDA, who I already mentioned, and then Bob Cadlick, who was like this former spy military man who ran this obscure agency called the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. Like mm-hmm. that guy was almost fired by Trump multiple times. So it's like, uh, and then the health secretary, Alex Azar, again, was like almost lost his job in, um, in April as well. Yeah. And so it's like the group in the health department were basically 
Operation Warp Speed was their baby, and it basically kept them on the job. And then, of course, it becomes Trump's legacy. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing of trying to fire those guys and Fauci yeah. and the nation, the nation trusted Fauci more than the president, which is kind of weird. I think, I think people are like, he's run for president, but he seemed to be more trusted than that. So in the future, is this going to make us better prepared for the next pandemic? Because if I understand, there's just more coming. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the hardest thing here. How do you prepare for just a, an event that is super unlikely, but super damaging, like an, a meteorite or an asteroid or whatever? How much money do you want to invest in that? And so Barney Graham, this, this scientist I told you at, about at the National Institutes of Health, he what he's pointed out is there's about 25 families of viruses that have members, viruses in these families, these groups that are threat, potential threats to people, okay? Mm-hmm. And we have licensed vaccines for 12 of those. That means there's been enough research and development that we know how to stop one of them. And so that means we might have a head start if another outbreak um, occurs in that family. The coronavirus, we were lucky because Barney had done sort of initial research on the coronavirus, so we had a head start. What about these 13 other virus families? His Mm -hmm. argument is these should all serve as prototype. We should make prototype vaccines to these potential threats. So we should be spending maybe not operation warp speed levels of funding, but a significant amount of funding towards developing vaccines for viruses that have yet to emerge. And that will give us a head start if some random virus suddenly lands in our country again. The Biden administration has certainly has ponied up some more cash towards some of this basic research. The way it is with this stuff, it's like everybody's thinking about it now. Where are we going to be five years from now? Oh yeah, coronavirus. I don't. So it is going to take sustained investment. It's going to. I'm sure there's going to be a whole new generation of vaccinologists and virologists. Everybody, that's what everybody's going to want to be right now if they're in elementary school. I think. <laughs> so, but yeah. Based on your research. Do you think coronavirus came from I, that? That's definitely like a pretty a hot button issue. I, I, I wouldn't hazard a guess. I'm not one of these people that's strongly okay. in one camp or another. It's certainly, I would say that it's, it's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. All of the, the information that's come out, the basically the general theory is there's a lab in Wuhan called the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They've done a lot of work on coronaviruses. They've collected coronaviruses from the field in a cave. I think it's like a thousand miles from Wuhan. And, and the question is, did this virus naturally emerge from, say, the wildlife trade or did it somehow, was it somehow brought to Wuhan by these scientists? And then there was some experiment that went wrong. Someone got infected and they spread it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's been interesting how divisive this has been. There's been a bunch yeah. of scientists who have rallied behind the Wuhan Institute people to, or locked arms and said, this is ridiculous. All other, plenty of other pandemics have emerged from wildlife, like the first SARS pandemic back in 2002 and 2003. So why is this any different? But it's, mm-hmm. and there's part of the problem is that China is not very open, right? Mm-hmm. They, they weren't open when the, they were delaying the release of the coronavirus sequence. They have not been totally transparent with what's been going on at that Wuhan Institute of Virology. And there have been some misstatements by the scientists at the Institute that make people very suspicious. And yeah, I definitely get into this a little bit in my book because it was the chatter inside the administration about where this thing came from. And no, we don't have an answer yet. And it seems really unlikely that we're going to have one anytime soon. Yeah, probably. Does 
I believe I had another author on the show where there was some reporting I picked up or scanned over. I collect a lot of data. I read a lot of stuff. I get bored a lot. And there was somebody who said that one of the problems that that, that had been that one of the things that had been in the system that was jamming things up was some of the religious people were put over in charge over the health departments and the science departments in the White House. And there was interference they were running with embracing the science of this. Is that true or am I not collecting my data properly? Or maybe I just got a different opinion from somebody who wrote a book. Huh. Are you, what are you referring to specifically about the use of like fetal embry- embryonic cells and in, in testing? Uh, like no, they, drugs it or? was, they, they put over the science divisions or the National Institutes of Health, they put people in the administration that were largely deeply religious. They just believe if you believe in the Bible, I'll do it. I think it was Nina Berle's book that, that there was that inference. I'd have to go back and check, so don't quote me. But, but anyway, I, I was just wondering if you'd seen that. So I, well, I definitely right. one of one of the things I do talk about in the book is the is the issue around the fetal embryonic cells. Maybe that was it. Is basically, there was a pretty intense debate within the Trump administration in the early days about whether they should ban the use of these cells. So basically, mm-hmm. to for various studies, scientists will take tissue from aborted embryos. Mm-hmm. And and will use those cells. I think sometimes they will put them. They'll, they'll do what's called make a humanized mice, where they put the cells into a mouse to make it grow human cells in it, mm-hmm. or else they'll develop new sort of get these cells to grow in the line in in the lab for several generations. And that's like some that's very important for doing certain types of vaccine and therapeutic work. And this was this huge debate. And ultimately, some more religious members of the administration, Joe Grogan, who is the head of what's called the Domestic pa- uh, Policy Council, mm-hmm. this very p- powerful group in the White House, won the b- that battle and basically had these cells banned um, from federal research. And the question of how big of a deal that was is hard to say. I think there there is is some thought that using it, it, there could have been some benefits for that, but I don't know that it really slowed us down with the vaccine race. Okay. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know because yeah, that may have been some of it. There was a lot of the a lot of the Centers for National Policy people were brought in or brought in pushing that sort of narrative and religious anti-science narrative. And I was wondering if that effect. Do you saw you know, on one hand the Trump Push the, the Trump administration pushed the Operation Warp Speed. And on the other hand, they started playing it against each other and creating all this confusion and then fire Fauci and then maybe bleach is better in your neck or whatever, injecting it. Um, it. Just for argument's sake, if we'd had a better scientifically based or let's just say a more stable genius in the White House, would things have maybe turn out faster and better? You can say that they did a great job with Operation Warp Speed, but maybe we wouldn't be as bad off as we have been these last few months or as many people would have died. Do Is there any, I don't know, am I just making stuff up and out of thin air? No, I, th- I think many of us hoped that the we thought rolling the vaccine out, once you get the vaccine, like, that's the hard part. And then they, everybody's going to line up to take it. And initially there was more people who wanted it than, than there, than there were doses. And now we're, we've reached this point where there's been this growing resistance to it. I think like the scale of that movement has been striking even to me. So I actually, this is a little bit of an aside, but I worked on this story a couple of years ago 
about this other infectious disease called Hindra, which is it's like Ebola in Australia. It comes from bats and then they give it to horses and then horse owners would end up getting this thing. And within days of catching it, you can die. And so it was just this horrible thing. And it turns out that and, and some people develop a company of Merck subsidiary developed a vaccine that mm. you vaccinate your horse and then you can break the chain of infection. Wow. It shouldn't be controversial at all. But yeah. all these horse owners refused to give their horses the vaccine because they felt it had too many side effects or was killing their horses. And it, it was just crazy to me that, yeah, and the level of the sort of social, the social variables here have been during the whole course of the pandemic, the viruses, like we can understand, we can study, we, there's like science there, but the sociology of vaccines is a whole other level of, of the unknown. And yeah, I think that the mixed messages we got from the Trump that the, the Trump administration delivered, which is we're going to get a vaccine out as soon as possible. FDA is slowing us down. That made people distrust the vaccine. And, yeah. then, and then once the thing was out and it was actually proven effective, then there's been this weird response to it. Now you, yeah. it doesn't work. And yeah, so, so it is very. And he took a lot of cues uh, from the Fauci. Just for a while there, Fauci was ruling the stand there in the White House at the, in the press room. And then they had him removed because he was making the small, the small guy feel smaller. So it was, it's really interesting the whole dynamic of how it went down. And I think you can look at, we're getting another set of politics here, but I think you can, really look at the Trump administration and go, they probably would have rolled right through another president's a second term, if not for the coronavirus and the way they handled it. Uh, if they would have handled it competently from start to finish, I'm talking about everything. You've covered some you know, good stuff that yeah. they did. But uh, if everything had been competent and done, we might have been really out of the vaccine, out of the sort of woods maybe by the time the election rolled around. And I think that's one of the key components of his biggest mistakes. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. He, even with that, that handicap, as you, as you will, of a pandemic, it's not like he totally bombed the, the election. Yeah, he was, he was, he was uh, far short yeah. when it came down to it. Yeah. And I uh, think he, one, one of the things that I just, I really found fascinating in, in working on this book is I do go deep inside the administration and the White House and the health department because it wasn't just, there were quite a few dedicated people including political appointees who were trying to solve this crisis, but there was no leadership, right? So the yeah. lack of leadership led to just infighting and power struggles and doing one thing one day, doing another thing the other day. And I think I, I like to say that the first few months of the pandemic, um, I don't think things could have been done that differently. We look around the world and a lot of countries with, you know, better governance which did not fare there was scientific disagreement there was it wasn't just political but it's like when you got into april and may of last year that's mm -hmm. when it became sort of the political side trying to crush what was becoming the scientific consensus which was that we need to obey social distancing we need to wear masks we need to be we need to basically slow this virus until we have a vaccine and that's where things went off the rails yeah and people have learned that our hospital systems are a mess. Crazy. This has been a great discussion. I think it's really important that people read these books, understand stuff, and that we really embrace scientists because technically, basically, they're the ones that saved us on this one. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, we don't screw without science. Otherwise, <laughs> it's pray and see how that works out.
but uh, we know uh, how that works some, some, some people are doing that. Yeah. Some people are doing that. Yeah. I've, and you know, I, I've been, I've seen a lot of data recently where, um, they've compared people that have the vaccines that survive when there's breakthroughs and people that don't, I know a lot of friends that didn't get the vaccine that have become long haulers. Now they've actually gotten it twice. And I know way too many people now at this point that have gotten the twice long hauler thing. We don't, and you know, everyone's, there might be some effects of it, but geez, we still don't even know the long-term effects of getting the COVID vaccine or I'm sorry, the getting the coronavirus. Yeah. And I've heard stuff from glass lung to God knows what, especially in young children. And we, we can end up where, I don't know, these people have higher cases of MS, I don't know, 20, 30 years from now or something. Who knows where this is going to lead? So it's crazy. We can't get the lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. I think getting the vaccine is many times safer than getting the actual virus. Do you think, uh, my last question for you, do you think we're going to need more than three? Is this, is this a, we're going to, we're going to live with this for a while, aren't we? I, I, I think that it's the, what the scientists told me when I was working on this is we don't know for sure how long this immunity is going to last. We don't know how there could be more dangerous variants that emerge like Delta, which was more transmissible. But I think what we're generally seeing is that the virus is going to be more like the common cold in the future. I don't know how many more peaks we're going to face. People say that this winter is not going to be as severe as last as the last one, but it could be bad for some people. But I think the coronavirus is definitely with us for, for a long time. And maybe in the future, we'll have to get a variant vaccine. I, I don't think that's... I'll never forget the, the first time I, I when I got my first shot from, from Moderna, it was like a relief. I was like... Uh-huh. Just knowing that I couldn't die or there was a real it was 99% chance I wouldn't die. Just knowing that was just like such a relief and such a, a secure thing. It was, it, you were like, wow, okay, all right. So we got this thing going. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming by, Brendan. Give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs. Yeah, thanks. I, my name is Brendan Burrell. My Twitter is B Burrell. Uh, website's brendanburrell.com or you can go to the website for the book, thefirstshots.com. And yeah, I'm excited to share the book with people. I think you'll find out a lot about the inside story of the vaccine race that you've never heard before. Yeah. And I think it will help educate people a lot more too as well. Thanks for coming on the show, Brendan. We certainly appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There you go. Thanks, my audience, for tuning in. Uh, go pre-order the book. You want to definitely get a hold of this baby so you can say you're the first one on your blog to read it. And, of course, educate yourself about the vaccine. If you have vaccine hesitancy or you're listening to a lot of weird news out there, go read the book. Find out what really went on to it. See the study and the science behind it. Learn more about what it's doing and you get your vaccines, will you? The first shots. The epic rivalries and heroic science behind the race to the coronavirus vaccine coming out October 26, 2021. Go ahead and order that baby up. Get it, get it to be the first on your block to do it. Go to all our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube.com, Forchess Chris Voss, and Goodreads.com, Forchess Chris Voss. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you guys next time. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. 
companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold. But the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, different collectors, limited edition, custom-made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold. 